invite you to take your Bibles out and go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. It is good to be here. I'm so very thankful for the invitation to come and to, to be back with the brethren here. Uh, always excited to get to open God's Word and to study it, and I hope that you'll study along with us uh, this evening. I hope that we've all come here with purpose tonight, and it's not to support the speakers, but it's to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that we've come with purposeful hearts to be receptive to the Word, uh, to allow it to convict and to change us into the, the image of, of Jesus Christ Himself. In Matthew chapter 25, tonight we're going to be talking about the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, uh, simply entitled this Hidden Talents, because I want to begin by simply asking you the question, what are your talents? Of course, we're talking in the perspective of the kingdom of God. What are the gifts that God has gifted you especially with? What are the talents that God has given you? But here's the important question. What contribution are you making to the body of Christ? Consider that question for just a moment. What kind of contribution are you making, not just to the greater kingdom of God, but this local body of believers. I think sadly, sadly, too often, we find ourselves in a place of complacency where we, we essentially feel as though we're doing our part to be present. And our presence should be enough, almost as if we think that people should be thankful that we came to sit with them for three hours a week. But what we find is when we come into the Word of God, and what Jesus is doing as He's calling disciples is He's calling us to be a productive people. To a great extent, actually, to the extent that Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow Me. Everything that Jesus does involves uh, action. Everything that He speaks and expects of His people involves Action. And when we get into Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew 25, I think this is really an amazing text as Jesus is speaking to those who are here. What we find is he's in the, on the, con, in the context of being up on Mount Olive. We get that um, just before, just as we're coming into chapter uh, 24. And it's interesting, he starts into this language when he starts foretelling the destruction of the temple. And it's kind of an interesting, slightly confusing chapter as you're reading down through there. You're left wondering with, well, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem through the whole thing? Or is he talking about the coming of the Lord? And, and I want to suggest to you as you read through it, it, to me it becomes fairly evident he's talking about both. He transitions from one to the other. The soon-to-come destruction... And then look even beyond that to the reality of the coming of the Lord. And so he transitions to this kind of language that foretells that the, there is going to be a day, there is going to be an end, and you must be ready. And I want to I show you something just very quickly, just very quickly, beginning in verse 29. And what, I, what I'm going to do, because this is not the focus, I just want to set up where we're going to go uh, get a little bit of the context here. Beginning in verse 29, if, you're like, if your Bible's like mine, you have these little subtitles that are inserted by man. Okay, let's, let's understand that first, uh, first of all. But man has gone through and inserted these little subtitles above passages of Scripture to kind of give us an idea going in what this series of Scripture is about. And so be, before verse 29, if yours is like mine, yours says something to the extent of the coming of the Son of Man. So we have from that an indication this passage is going to be about the day when the Lord is going to come back. And if you read through that text, it becomes very, fairly evident. In verse 36, he says this, Concerning that day and that hour, nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows the day or the hour. There is a day that is coming when the Lord's going to come back. It is going to be a day of judgment. Nobody knows. And here's the encouragement in verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This is a speech that he's giving up on Mount 
Olive. And it's interesting, he starts setting it up by reminding his audience that the Lord, he's going to come back. There's going to be a day of the Lord. God's going to come back. He's going to come back and he is going to bring us to a place of judgment. We're going to be judged for what we have done in this life. And it's coming at a day and an hour that you do not know. Therefore, you must be ready. And it's interesting. I want you to jump to the end of this speech that Jesus is giving. The end of the speech at the end of chapter 25. At the end of chapter 25, the very last thing that he does, beginning in verse 31, is jump back to the idea of a final judgment. And in verse 46... At the very conclusion of chapter 25, he says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's talking about that end time when the judgment will be administered. It's interesting. I find it interesting that chapter 24 sets up the coming of the Son of Man at an unexpected hour, therefore be ready, and the end of the speech goes back to that idea. And why I think that's interesting is because what we find in this greater context of chapter 24 and 25 is this is what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing in in these two chapters is He is preparing disciples for His return. He starts it that way. He ends it that way. This is the big picture. And in between, He gives us two parables. The first one, the parable of the ten virgins, Stressing the idea that you and I need to be prepared for that day. The second one, the parable of the talents, stressing the idea that we need to be productive. And so from these two chapters, we have these two ideas. If you want to be ready for the unexpected day of the Lord, make sure that each and every day in this life you are preparing yourself and you are living your life in a productive manner for God. This is how God is glorified. This is what brings us to a place where we can stand with peace of mind and confidence and anxiously await the coming of the Lord. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 tells us that the grace of God teaches us three things. Stay away from unrighteousness, commit yourself to righteousness, and anxiously await the Lord's return. Those are three markers of those who have been taught by God's grace. So here in this text, he's telling us, how do we get to a place where we can anxiously await God's return? Prepare yourself and be productive. Let's read the text beginning in chapter 25 and verse 14. Chapter 25 and verse 14. Chapter 25 and verse 14. We're getting the start back up in chapter 25 as he's introducing these These two parables, he begins in verse 1, the parable of the ten virgins, the kingdom of heaven will be like, and he's he's following up on that same idea down in verse 14, it will be like, what will be like? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, he entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once. And he traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went, and he dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master... You delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, I tell you, I tell you what, that will be beautiful words to hear from the Lord our God one of these days, wouldn't it? You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22. He also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, 
and you gather, and I, and that I gather where I have scattered no seed. So then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine plus interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a parable that probably the majority of us are familiar with. I'd say it's one of the more popular parables probably dealt with. uh, Probably in the top five of those that are most commonly spoken about. And you know, it's interesting here as we get into the text, the text becomes fairly clear. I mean, the message is very simple as you see it from a bird's eye view. And it is simply this idea of stewardship. God has entrusted gifts to us. And His intention for entrusting gifts to us is that we be good stewards. And we use those things to His glory. We use those things for him. And of course, the application, the specific, specific application, as we're bringing it into our context, right now, in this moment, this day and time, these people right here, is that God has given each one of us gifts and talents. And they're not just to be put in the pockets or buried in the ground. We're not just to, just to show up and, and feel as though our presence is, is exactly what God's calling us to do. No, He intends for us to be good stewards. He has entrusted us with something very valuable, something something very precious. And he simply says, here, use this for me. Use this for me. I I simply want to use the next few moments just to consider a couple of lessons that can be drawn from this um, text. I think it has some very valuable lessons to teach us. And honestly, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but say it pretty confidently, I think, that if each one of us in this room, and, and, and this is with the acknowledgement there are, so, there are many people doing great things right now, and the encouragement is keep doing it, keep pressing on, keep increasing. But I would say pretty confidently that if this lesson right here is one that we could commit absolutely to putting into practice in our everyday lives, if we would take this lesson Uh, not my words, what's here in Matthew chapter 25, and consider the application, consider the instruction that's being given, and we can sit down on a daily basis and consider, give thoughtful evaluation to how can I use my gifts and my talents for God's glory today. Can you imagine the ramifications of that? Not just in this body of believers, but in the universal kingdom of God. Can you imagine not just the impact of that in this congregation, but can you imagine the impact of that in this community because of this people right here striving to be a light to the world and the salt of the earth? Striving to live out the words of God, to emulate Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, He was serving. He was not just speaking. He was using His hands. And the very special gifts and talents that he had been entrusted with, he was using them all for one purpose. The glory of God. Can you imagine the impact of that? Do you know that you have a gift? You know, it's interesting, we go into this text and we immediately recognize, well, this guy was given five, this guy, well, he was only given two. Well, this guy, God must not have liked him very much, he just gave him one. That's not the point. The point, everybody was given something. Everybody in this story was given something. I want you to turn in your Bibles very quickly, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, I just want you to notice something that's said in the text of Scripture here. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it kind of emphasizes for us this idea that God gifts different people with different measures. Here in this text in Matthew 25, we see the talents were distributed according to the ability. But what's, what's painfully obvious, we don't want to accept it sometimes. I think sometimes we like feeling like we don't have gifts and talents because in our minds it provides an excuse for not doing things. But 
though he gave each one according to their ability, so he gave five, two, and one, what is clear is that every single one of them had ability. One, maybe not quite as much as the next one, but every single person had ability. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 10, I just want you to notice some of the language that, that is used here by Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I just think that's interesting, the words that Peter chose to use there. God's varied grace. He has graced each and every single one of us, but He has done so differently. Varieties of God's grace. It sounds like Matthew chapter 25. To one He gave five, to one He gave two, to one He gave one, but He gave everybody something. Everyone has received a measure of God's grace, and those are manifested through the gifts and the talents that God has given you. If you are sitting in this audience tonight, don't ever sell yourself short. Because you are made in the image of God, and not just that, but fearfully and wonderfully, God knows you better than anybody else. He knows you better than yourself. He cares and is concerned about you more than anybody else in this life. He is the author of your life, and it is for a purpose. And maybe your purpose or your gift set or your talents are not quite the same as the person sitting next to you. But you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And he has distributed freely to you a measure of his grace. What is it? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. I'm going to help you figure it out. What is your talent? What is your gift? But everyone has one. Everyone has them. It's just a matter of figuring out what those are. And everyone's gifts are valuable. You've probably, I'm not going to the, the, make the guesstimate as to what this talent would have equaled in today's currency. You can go to different commentaries and different scholars, and it's going to differ. But here's the thing. No matter which number you find represented by this person or that person, they are all high numbers, valuable, even the one-talent man. We see that number one, and immediately it turns off in our mind these, the, the, this mindset that is just uh, as nothing, but a talent was a valuable, valuable gift. You know, regardless of the amount that God has distributed to you as far as gifts and talents go, your gift is very, very valuable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're getting into the context of miraculous spiritual gifts, these tools that God is using to relay His full revelation. He's talking about prophecy. He's talking about, He's going to start talking about speaking in tongues. And these various gifts that was bestowed upon the, the church in the very beginning to, uh, to bring about the full revelation of God's Word when it had yet to come. But I want to just notice something He does as He goes in to start talking about this language. The very first thing he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse, verse 12 is he reminds everyone before he gets into the specifics of the gifts, he reminds them all, whatever yours happens to be, never sell yourself short. You're valuable. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think I told you verse 12, but I'm starting in verse uh, 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Your gift, your talent may not be as much in a specific area as the person sitting next to you, but listen to this. This is encouraging. The same God that gave them theirs gave you yours. And I think that's a powerful point to make it the same God behind someone's specific gift, maybe a gift we would love to have that we don't, the same God that gave them that gift is the same God that gave me mine. 
And what that reminds me of, and we're going to get some more text here in 1 Corinthians 12 in just a little while, but what that reminds me of is the fact that they are all one and the same. Different gifts, different talents, same God, same purpose, same outcome. The glory of God, the building up the body. He's going to work his way down through this text again. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 12 in a little while. But I just want you to notice something just very quickly. Different gifts and different measures, but it is the same God behind them all. We read stories in the Old Testament like Gideon and Moses are the ones we, we immediately think about. Gideon, of course, God came, came to Gideon and basically said, I, has, I have equipped you for this great responsibility. I want you to go and, and be a leader for my people. Gideon immediately starts selling himself short, reminding God of all the reasons why he is not capable of doing what God is calling him to do. My, my tribe is the weakest and my family is the weakest in the tribe, but God assured him, I will be with you. And once Gideon understood that, that God was the one behind the call that God is issuing, and that God's promises were true, and that God was going to be faithful to him, he went and he did and accomplished exactly what God called him to do. Moses was the same way. You remember when God came to Moses, the burning bush, he said, I want you to do this thing that really, when you try to put yourself in Moses' shoes, this was an awesome task, huge task, scary, daunting but God said, I want you to go, and I want you to go talk to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring my people out of Egypt. Moses offered excuses. All it took, though, was God assuring him, I'll be with you. I'll be behind you. And Moses went, and he accomplished great things for the God. God saw his gifts. God sustained him. And what we saw through the accounts recorded for us in the Old Testament is that his gifts were very valuable. They accomplished some great and some amazing and awesome things. And I want you to notice something else, too. God gifted them with varied, um, varied distributions of his grace. Let's just go back in the context of Matthew 25. One man had five talents, one man had two talents, and one, had ma- one man had one. We're going to go ahead and cut him out. He obviously did nothing with what God entrusted to him. So uh, essentially the end of the story, it's at the judgment. He was found lacking. He didn't. He was not a good steward, and so he was cast into hell. So now we have the five-talent man and the two-talent man. Different measures. This is obviously a higher number. But when you consider the idea, I want you to notice something, that the five-talent man made five more. The two-talent man made two more. Both were a 100% increase. Isn't that interesting? The numbers were different, but the glory received was the same. Your gifts are valuable. Don't ever sell yourself short. They both received the same response from the Lord, their God who gave the gifts. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Your gifts, and everyone has them, are valuable. And that's why they're meant to be used. God, God didn't uh, distribute, He did not entrust us with these gifts to be hoarded for ourselves or to be shoved under the rug or to, to be denied by our misuse or our unuse. Everyone's gifts are to be used. It's interesting when the one man, uh, the one talent man is called, let's go back to the context of Matthew 25, when, when the one man, one talent man is called uh, before the master, and he was asked why he didn't, didn't receive an increase, his response, if you remember, I knew you to be a hard man and reap where you did not sow, and so I buried. It's interesting to see his response was the consequence of the way he viewed his master. His response, what he did, was a consequence of the perception he had of his master. And so here's the question I want to ask you. What is your perception of your God? How do you view God? What is your perception? What is your view about this God that you serve? How do you look upon your role as a steward in relationship to the God whom you serve. Have you ever felt like the one talent man? You know God has gifted you like everyone else. You know God intends for you to use those gifts, but man, fear of the unknown is just standing in your way. 
I've been there. I'll be the first to admit I've been there, and I still find myself there at times. Bad things happen, and we know that. We think about the idea of using our talents and our gifts to press forward, to be proactive in this life God has called us to, but we, can't just see, we just can't seem to get past sometimes the idea that, well, what if this happens? Or what if this person rejects me in an effort to teach them the gospel? Not everyone really wants help, and since I don't know who it is, they're probably just going to reject me anyway, so I might as well just not, not go. As a matter of fact, not everyone even appreciates help. Not everyone's going to come to the gospel. Some may even hate you for suggesting change in your life, in their, in their lives. Is it a fear of God that thinks that if I put myself out there and I fail, that God is going to be displeased with me? I think that's what it is sometimes. I think that we're afraid that if we put ourselves out there and our efforts uh, don't prove to be fruitful, that God is just going to just strike us down. We lose sight of the fact that God says He'll give the increase. He just intends for us to plant in water. But because of how we view God, it has inhibited our action. I've found myself there. But you know, God doesn't want us to serve Him out of fear and guilt. He wants us to serve Him out of gratitude and love. Confidence, faith, trust. But He's with us and He's behind the gifts and the talents that he has given to us. Just very quickly in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, it's a text probably familiar to you as well. Romans chapter 12, it is a call to be living sacrifices for God, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we might know what is good and acceptable and perfect. But it's interesting there in verse 1. I've always found it interesting in verse 1, this high calling he's, he's issuing here being living sacrifice for me, be holy, be acceptable, be, uh, be given to logical or reasonable or spiritual worship. Don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's appealing to one thing as a motivator for living that kind of life. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. That's why we serve. We love because He first loved us. We know what He's done. We know where He's brought us. And it is our failure sometimes to remember that, to be reminded of that, that we are unmotivated. Or we, we have a lack of motivation to act in this life. But He's saying remember. As a matter of fact, I believe Romans chapter 1 through 11 are building that foundation. Remember the God you serve. He is merciful. He is He is faithful. This is what He has done. This is what He's done for His people. Now go and live for Him. Be active for Him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's just look at a couple of passages, a couple more passages along this line before we move into how do we discover what our gift sets are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read beginning in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, the so is, contingent, is, is built upon the foundation of what he just said. What did he just say? You are not your own because... Sorry, I got that in, in reverse. He's giving the, the reason afterwards. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why do you need to glorify God with your body? Why do you need to be a living sacrifice? Why do you need to withstand evil? And why do you need to be given to what is good? Well, because you were bought with a price and it wasn't cheap. This whole message in the religious world today of faith only or grace only, and there's no expectation, there's no responsibility, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. And I say amen all over that. Cheap Grace. That's not grace that teaches. That's grace that just simply accommodates whatever life you want to lead. That's not grace. That's not grace teaching. That's not me allowing grace to perfect and to transform and to complete and to bring me into the image of Christ that God has called me to. No, grace teaches those three things. Why? Because we were bought with a price and we're not our own. And so we are seeking to glorify God in our body. Very quickly, back to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, and then we're going to move on, verses 4 through 6. Romans 7, 4 through 6. 
My brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear the fruit of God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that, notice this, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want to remind you of what you already know. God is awesome. He is perfect. He is amazing. He is full of mercy. He is full of gracious love, overflowing. And you know, he's been all, He has been all of that for me, and He's been all of that for you. But He did it for a purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. So that you might be His workmanship, created for good works. Matthew 25, use your gifts for God. That's the reason He created you in Christ. It wasn't just to save you from your sins, it was to produce in you a righteousness that wells up into productivity and fruitfulness for the kingdom. He intends not just to save you, but to use you. And if we will not be used, we will not be saved. Isn't that what he teaches in Matthew 25? So, we can probably all agree, all throughout Scripture, not just in Matthew 25, we're reminded of the idea that God blesses us with gifts. Those gifts are very valuable, and God intends for us to use those things. But, but here's the million-dollar question that we want to ask. How do I discover what my gifts are? How do I come to that knowledge? How do I figure that out? I, I, I've, I, I've just always wondered, and, and I'm going to suggest to you, it's not by getting online and taking a spiritual gifts test, Okay? They're everywhere out there. As a matter of fact, I took some classes at a Bible college not too, too long ago, and, and they had us take those things. And I'm going to tell you, those things are bogus. Okay, it's got 50 things you could be, and you're supposed to mark the rate how you are with different situations, and at the end you go through and calculate it. And it's supposed to tell you by the largest number which one you're the best at. But when one says 19, and that's the highest, but the next one says 18, and the next one says 17, it's still pretty hard to figure out. You're not going to do it by taking a spiritual gifts test. The answer to this question, how do I discover my gifts, is actually really simple, but it requires some work. You discover your talents by starting to serve. And then you know what happens? As you start to serve, you start to figure it out out. I think this is the intimidating thing that we get caught up sometimes. We don't know what we're good at going in, and so instead of the trial and error process out of the fear of failing and that that false perception of how we see God, we become a people who are highly ineffective and unproductive. When in reality, what God has called us to do is to just start serving in whatever capacity we can, look for opportunities to do good, and you'll figure it out what you're good at. You'll figure out what part of the body you are. And you'll start to see your significance in the body. And you'll start to see how valuable your gift is for building up the whole, but not just that, but through that, glorifying God through your Life, the best way to discover your talents, you just start serving. Just start doing things, and before too long, it'll become clear. But I also want to suggest to you a couple of things along these lines to keep in mind. First of all, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. As a matter of fact, I came across this quote, and I think it's very valuable and important for us to consider just for a moment, because I think so oftentimes we get discouraged by the idea that we are not going to be perfect at something. Well, I can't do it perfectly, so I just might as well not even try. But I want you to listen to this quote. Um, if God only used perfect people, nothing would ever get done. Right? If God only used perfect people, Egypt would have, uh, Israelites would have stayed in Egypt. The people would have stayed in captivity. 
So many things would have never happened throughout this grand scheme of God's revelation of Himself and His people. Jesus would have saved us from our sins and we would have fallen right back into it. And the moment we did, all hope is gone, doom, darkness, destruction. But thankfully, in 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 2, he writes these things so that we don't sin, but when we do, we have an advocate now in Christ, Jesus Christ. And we can go to him and seek forgiveness, and we can, see, we can come to him with repentant hearts, and he will forgive us. And you know, as we come into the context of gifts and, and talents, you're not going to be perfect. But God uses imperfect people to do amazing things. He has all the way throughout the course of history. And he intends to do it with you and with me. Number two, size has no bearing on significance. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians 12. I told you we'd come back here eventually. 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Coming back to that idea, God is behind them all, no matter how big, no matter how small, as God chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God has this beautiful picture of this body that is united in mind, purpose, heart, soul, everything, bearing witness to Him into this world, bearing fruit, being effective, bringing glory to Him. And what that body needs, it needs a head, it needs fingers, it needs toes, it needs a nose. Every part. Every single one of them is significant. You know, I, I think sometimes this excuse of my role not being significant is, is part of the problem. We sometimes on a personal level are, are ineffective and unproductive sometimes because we think that the big things are the ones that matter. I can't do those things, so I can't do anything. So often we overwhelm ourselves with unrealis- unrealistic expectations and we Uh, We just throw in the towel before we even begin. I'm going to tell you how many times I've thought about throwing in the towel on our house. We're building a house right now, and I'm doing a whole lot of it myself. And I'll get to a a task, and I'm about to start it, and I'm just like, man, this is huge. This is going to take me weeks. I don't want to do this. Happened with our drywall. I've intended all along to hang all the drywall in our house. I did it growing up. I can do it. I knew it was probably going to take me two to three months by myself to do it got so daunting, I hired someone this week. Not even going to start. Just let them do it for me. But we have that same kind of mentality sometimes with this life. We get so overwhelmed and we work ourselves up so much that we just decide it's just easier to just not small. I want to give you some encouragement. If you want to do great things for God, good. He intends for you too. And two, you can do great things for God. But you know how it starts? It doesn't start by you going out and being able to convert five people at once. It starts by you taking small steps, gaining some confidence, letting God faithfully lead you through this moment and that moment, doing this and then gaining confidence to do that, and eventually you get to where you want to go. It doesn't all happen at once. I'm not going to just make up my mind, well, drywall is going to get done today, and I'm going to do it myself, and it's going to be done by the end of the day. It's, not, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. You start small. One man, acknowledged, uh, one man acknowledged this, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but there are few of us willing to do the little things. And you know, I think sometimes our failure to be willing to do the little things is sometimes why churches divide. And why families fall apart. And why the gospel is never spread is because there are people not willing to do the small things that are so desperately needed. We focus so much on big things, we lose sight of the significance of the smaller ones. Size doesn't determine significance. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And Satan gets us with that lie all the time. He says, you can't do that. 
Jason, you can't do that task. It's not going to make any difference. Don't go talk to that person. It's just going to make things awkward. They probably don't want you to come talk to them anyway. Someone else will probably take care of that need. Don't worry about it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, though reminds me that my role is to commit to being the part of the body. To do what God calls me to do, to commit myself to the opportunities that God has laid before me. And I think it's important to remember this too. Nobody has all the gifts. We just don't. We get overwhelmed by that too. I wish I could do this like so-and-so, or I wish I could do that like so-and-so. Well, you know what? Try, and it's great that you're trying to serve in that capacity, but, but don't get overwhelmed by the fact that God hasn't specifically gifted you with something that he's gifted somebody else with. Nobody has all the gifts. We just read that in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It doesn't consist of one member. He's made this. He has chosen this person to be that. He's chosen this person to be that. And the body works when we accept our role and serve. Um, some, some of the conversations, the preachers got together for lunch today, and some of the conversation, I, I just, I sit there and think. I like to listen to people talk and think. And it reminded me of a quote that I heard one time, and I actually have it written on my wall in my office. And it simply says this. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Nobody has all the gifts, but we all have gifts. They're all valuable. They're all significant. Do what you can. Do what you can. He made the body. And each one of us members of it. I, um, Steve, me and Stephen didn't get together on this before, but I was going to reference the song We Are One in my sermon. And I just think it's, I think it's important to remember verse 3. It's a powerful message. You serve, when you serve where I cannot, I rejoice in what he's planned. By your strength, our work is done, and we follow his command. I think that's a beautiful line because it says, you're serving where I can't. I've accepted that. I fulfill my role. You fulfill your role. And in the greater, the greater picture of it all, I rejoice in the way that God has planned it. That's how he planned it. First Corinthians chapter 12, he created the body. Individuals to be members of the body. And I think this line is, I don't know whether the author intended for us to read this far into it, but I think, it, I think it's powerful. By your strength... Our work is done. What he's doing is he's acknowledging that the gifts and the talents you use to serve God are part of our work. It's not your work, it's our work. We are one. Verse 2, actually I skipped it, but verse 2, we are members of his church made to fill each different role. When we use our gifts for him, then our work builds up the whole. It's the idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, building up the greater whole. As a matter of fact, he goes on in the conversations about prophecy in tongues in chapter 14 to say, God's gifted you with these, but if you're not using them for building up the whole, don't use them. If you're speaking in tongues, but no one understands what you're doing, nobody can be built up by that. Stop doing it. The idea is the building up of the whole. No one has all the gifts. He created us to be part of something larger than ourselves. And what that means is I desperately need you and you desperately need me. And I need the person sitting next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you. I do want to give this encouragement, though, before we move on. I don't want you to, to take away from this that you need, to, you need to figure out what you're good at and not ever do anything else. Do your best to serve in different capacities. God hasn't gifted you with every gift, but he has equipped you with opportunities to serve in areas that maybe not be, may not be your specific area of talent, but, but uh, do your best to serve in different capacities. But also remember this as motivation going forward. We get discouraged by the idea, well, I just don't think this is going to be productive. I don't think anything's going to come of this. Well, your job is not to give the increase. If you use your gifts for God, you are glorifying God. Let God do the rest. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God give the increase. What that means is, I'm going to do my part, you do your part, we'll put our confidence in God. Are you putting your confidence in God? 
Are you giving witness to the fact that your confidence or testament to the fact that your confidence in God by doing, acting, using your gifts and your talents for him? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I know I'm, uh, I'm about out of time, but I want to go ahead and finish. I, I want to share something with you in just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Of course, here Paul is writing, and in chapter, the beginning of chapter 4, all these verses I skipped down through verses 1 through 6, he's talking about the beauty of the gospel, the powerful uh, saving nature of the gospel and how it's life and it's light. He's just, he's just building up the gospel. And basically what he does is he says this in verse 7, we have this treasure, the gospel, the treasure, in jars of clay, referring to himself and disciples, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. I think that's the way we see ourselves sometimes, but it does the adverse effect. We are just simply jars of clay. There's nothing special. There's nothing special about my abilities, especially as I'm looking at other people and consider what they're doing. Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just not even going to try. I'm incapable of producing any kind of effect for God. Actually, actually, God is using you not to highlight you, but to highlight his gospel. And I, I, I want to bring this up just to give you a little bit of encouragement. I want to read to you this poem. It is a little bit lengthy, and I apologize for that, but, but I'll get through it. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value, and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest, and for someone like you, master, gold would be best. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, Polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you used me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay, empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, said the master, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend it, I will use it, and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride in itself, not the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one who displays his contents so proud, not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain, earthy vessel, filled with my power and my might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, he mended it and cleansed it and filled it that day, spoke to it kindly, there is work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. You know, that's what God's done with us. He has mended us that were broken. He has made us whole, he has sanctified us, he has redeemed us, he's saved us, he's taken us from the kingdom of darkness put us in the kingdom of light. He has adopted us as His children, undeserving as we were, adopted us as children, filled us with His glory, filled us with His might. And He says, there's work you must do. You know, we can come up with so many excuses, but I want to suggest to you that, that when we stand before the Lord, all of our excuses for not acting and serving and using our gifts and our talents, all of our excuses will sound very hollow on that day. When we're reminded in the presence of the Lord of what He done, we witness as we, we remember as we see His nail-scarred hands and His nail-scarred feet, and, and everything begins to be made clear as we remember everything our precious Savior did for us and how we neglected that through our living. 
All of our excuses on that day will sound very hollow. But you know, what if we decided I'm not going to make excuses anymore? I'm going to serve. I'm going to use my gifts. I'm going to be God's instrument to work for his increase. Can you imagine the impact? of? I don't know how many people are here tonight. 150, I'm just going to guess. Can you imagine the impact of 150 people committed to that? Every church is filled with willing people, it was once said, some who are willing to work and others who are willing to let them. But what if every church was filled with willing people who are willing to work? You know, God has equipped you, he's equipped me just for that, giving us our own unique and different gifts and trusting them to be used, and he's called us to have this mindset. What is mine is really his, therefore I will, I will, I will give it back. I will use it for him, I will return it to him. I'm going to close with this. Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 8 is that powerful passage when God calls the prophet Isaiah and he receives this vision and the seraphim and he acknowledges as he witnesses the glory of God his own sinfulness and the seraphim flies and it takes the burning coal from the altar, touches his lips and sanctifies him for the service of God. And, and then God, God issues this call, who will go for me and do this great task that he had for someone to do? It says, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Just a moment ago, he realized his own um, inability, unworthiness. But yet in response to the sanctification by God, he says, I'm going to go. I want to close with this. Um, it was, it is, I don't know where this came from. I can't remember where it came from, but it was found in someone's Bible next to this passage, these powerful words, and I want to leave you with it. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. I want to thank you for your kind attention. Uh, I believe we'll take a small break at this time.